And good to see everyone on this uh, wonderful weekend that we get off, and there's at least been a little bit of sun shining, and that's always a good thing too. I wonder, uh, have, you ever, have you ever thought to yourself, um, I'm not advocating lotteries, okay, but if you won a lottery and you won a million dollars, or $5 million, or $400 million, or something insane like that. Have you ever thought what that would do for you? You think, you know, if I had money, you know what, I I would do this, and I would do this, and that, and the other thing. Quite a number of years ago, I was was at a, a garage sale, and one of the books that was on a table for, you know, basically a giveaway price was, um, you know, where are they now? It was people who won lotteries. And it was kind of interesting. I, I, I picked it up and, and uh, read through it. And, and what was interesting to me was um, how many of those people went bankrupt? How many of those people had relational problems? How many of those people uh, were, were just uh, uh, plagued by family members looking for money and friends looking for money and uh, investors calling and charities calling and they couldn't get anywhere that people weren't trying to touch them up for money. And, uh, you know, the, the, the incredible thing is uh, what was they thought would bring them so much joy and satisfaction uh, was caused them immeasurable grief. And um, what they thought was a really good thing, you know, is kind of a little bit dangerous. You know, we, we think the road to success is something that, that most of us would aspire to be on. I think back to uh, Princess Diana. I remember I was uh, up in Muskoka's and I was uh, doing a, uh, I was in, in a dog show up there and I was staying with some friends and they set the alarm, I think it was for four o'clock in the morning so they could watch the royal wedding, right? Some of you did that, didn't you? You were not putting up your hand, but I know you did that and, and I, I was up with the, those people too. I, I'm not proud of it, but... Uh, uh, anyway, it was, what was so interesting was, was uh, you know, watching the beauty and the splendor of this, this uh, radiant bride as she comes down with this huge long train and, and, and all of the pomp and circumstance of, of a royal wedding. And, and uh, I mean, here's Diana. She, she is just like kind of a, a bit of an everyday gal and, and uh, the envy of all her friends being swept into this uh, love affair with Prince Charles and becoming his wife. And uh, it really catapulted her to the world stage. Uh, and this happily ever after wedding, you know, this is, this is like success. This is the epitome of it. Um, all the money she wants, all the prestige she wants, uh, all the attention. Most photographed woman in the world, that was Diana, but it didn't last. Sadly, her marriage had difficulties. Uh, there were family challenges. The paparazzi uh, just continuously were lurking behind every bush trying to get pictures of her, and, and especially embarrassing pictures if they could. A marriage breakup, depression, an eating disorder, a very unhappy woman, and sadly, 
her life ends tragically while she is freeing from the paparazzi and uh, in, in, uh, in a motorcade has a, a, a terrible crash. You see, here's, uh, here's the deal. Success can be dangerous. Success can be dangerous. I suppose one of the pictures of, of success that I think about, and success gone wrong, uh, was of a hockey player uh, by the name of uh, Derek... Uh, come on, help Derek Sanderson. Derek Sanderson is, was a, a young kid uh, growing up in Niagara Falls, lived in a modest home with parents. And uh, in fact, he wanted to be a musician, and his dad really wanted him to be a hockey player and, and pushed him in that direction. And so he said, like a 12 or 13-year-old, he says, Dad, I want a pair of CCM tax skates. And his dad said, that's like about a month's salary for me. And uh, he says, okay, here's the deal. I'll get you the skates. You give me the first Stanley Cup ring you get. And he said, oh, sure. Well, he got it. And, and he, was a, he was a great talent. Um, he, had, uh, he had grit. He had quick hands. He was fast on his skates. And he was drafted by the Boston Bruins. In fact, he won the Calder Trophy uh, for the top rookie in the league. And uh, he would be on two uh, Stanley Cup uh, champion teams with the Boston Bruins. Except that uh, all of that success was hard for him to handle. His antics on and off the ice wore thin. His, his playboy lifestyle, heavy drinking, uh, party animal, walking with a swagger. Uh, he'd come from this modest beginning and now everything was his. And uh, in fact, the fledgling uh, World Hockey Association sought to pick him up, the, uh, the Philadelphia Blazers, for a $2.65 million contract, which was more than any other pro sports uh, figure had ever had. And so uh, he got that. Um, but uh, while, while he was trying to deal with all of this success, uh, he went into a Rolls-Royce dealership. And uh, he's looking at cars, and, and uh, in fact, he, he looked at one in particular, the Silver Shadow. And the, the uh, salesperson was rather dismissive of him, like this punk in here in a, in a Rolls-Royce store looking at a car like that. He was so incensed about that, he went to the bank and got a teller's check for $78,000, which in today's currency is like $400,000. Walked in, bought the car, and made sure that the guy who was snubbing him would get no commission on that. Uh, unfortunately, he said, the car ran out of gas on the way home. But here is this, here is this guy, he's got everything. And he goes into this new league, and eight, eight games into the new season and the new contract, he has some back trouble, and he's out. And in fact, they bought him out of the contract for a million dollars, and things went for bad, from bad to worse for him. Uh, he wanted to prove that he was really something. The success and the stardom and the money and the lifestyle was too much for this young man. He was addicted to drugs and alcohol and uh, was a womanizer. And putting all these things together with the lifestyle was a lethal combination. And nobody wanted to hire him to play. He would try here and there on a contract and they would let him go. 
Sanderson was in and out of 13 rehab programs and ended up in Central Park sleeping on park benches and under, uh, under, uh, 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 under uh, any place he could find for shelter. He was penniless. He was panhandling. He was stealing liquor wherever he could. Success for him proved dangerous. Thankfully, he did get some help later on and, and made a comeback. In fact, here's, here's Derek Sanderson. Or maybe he's not. I guess he's not. He disappeared. Anyway, Google him. Success was intoxicating. And the Bible warns for us against the danger of success. We read this morning in Deuteronomy. Picture this. Here come the the children of Israel. They come out of Egypt because God freed them. He brought them out. He, he, uh, He brought them into the wilderness. And there he provided for their needs. And when they disobeyed, he said, this whole generation will not go in. And so they spent 40 years Trudging, uh, trudging around the, uh, the desert. And then they're finally ready to go into the promised land. And uh, Moses is not going to go in because of his own sin. He will not enter into the promised land. And that, but what he does is he tries to show the Israelites and, and to pour out his heart to help them and prepare them from going, for going into the land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is really... It's the passionate prayer uh, and, and preaching of Moses who won't go into the land but wants to prepare the people. And he says, you know what? When you go in there and God blesses you guys and you've got all this to eat and you've got all, all these riches and everything, he says, um, watch out because there's a danger in that kind of thing. Uh, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast, dreadful wilderness of thirstless and thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known. He did this to humble you and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. He said, you know what? There's a danger in success. There's a danger in that, in that you begin to look to yourself. You begin to believe you did it yourself, and it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with God. And, and so he, he, he leads them in this and is so concerned for them. He's concerned about idolatry, that you take the place of God in your own life, that you want to be worshipped, and you, you rely on something other than God. You rely on yourself. And so you remove yourself from a place of God's blessing. He says, think of the success, though, of David. Think of David. David enjoys incredible success as a young man. Just think of it. Um, here is David. He's, he's a teenager. 
He's gone and he has faced the giant that no one else would do. He goes and, and he slays Goliath. And, and uh, as a teenager, he was just put on the fast track to popularity. Uh, no one knew about him before Goliath. Who is that kid? You know, that's what Saul says. Who is that kid? What family is he from? And his general Abner says, I, I don't know. Uh, he, nobody knew him. But here, David is catapulted instantly to extreme stardom. In fact, here's, here's what was happening for him. When, when after, after the uh, battle with Goliath, the warriors come home, and as they come into their towns, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the, woman, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and timbrel and lyres. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Man, you talk about being known. I mean, that song was on the hit parade for years. And uh, all, even the enemies, even the Philistines knew that song. They said, aren't you David? Or they said, he's slain tens of thousands. Uh, they knew about it. After uh, all of a sudden, this nobody is known by everybody. Uh, young teenage girls have posters of David up in their bedrooms. He is so brave and so dreamy and so good looking. And he's a ginger too. And uh, that's for you. That's for my sister. David, David is loved by Saul's family. Um, I, I, won't, I won't go through all of it, but uh, Jonathan uh, loved David, was totally committed to him. And uh, Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul, he thought this was a good thing. The boss's family loves you. That was, that was a great thing for him. Uh, David was also loved by the nation. The whole nation loved him. It said, but all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. He is successful in that way. He's successful in the military. Uh, a summary statement is the Philistines' commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met them with more success than the rest of all of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. David is promoted in the army. What it says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. This guy, he is, he is just like everything. He's got the Midas touch. Everything he does is successful. That's what he says. Everything that David did was successful and everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him I mean it couldn't it couldn't go better but I want you to think this was a kid this was a teenager this was somebody who whose meteoric rise was actually unbelievable it was so much to uh, to try and absorb from the pastor pasture to the palace in one step people were singing his praises uh, all the who's who knew who David was. He was married to the king's daughter. He was good looking. He was talented. He, he could, he could uh, 
his stock was rising and they, nobody, nobody could see a, a ceiling for David. It was so high. Let me ask a question. Is this too much for a teenager? Can a teenager handle, handle something like this? With his family being the youngest kid brother of eight boys, um, his, his family didn't, uh, they weren't all that absorbed with him. Um, could a kid like that go unscathed? Would you be able to handle that kind of success if you were a teenager or in your early 20s? Would you stay centered? Would you be grounded? Would you be trusting God? Would you be humble? Or would this all go to your head so you became somebody different? Well, see, David was to be the next king. Saul was the king, but David, but, but Samuel came and in a private ceremony anointed David as the next king, although nobody knew about it. Uh, nobody would tell Saul because they were afraid of the response that he would have. And uh, here he is. David now is trying to acclimatize himself to this new life, this newfound status, this popularity. Something was struck, stuck in Saul's, uh, Saul's craw about this whole thing. Something that galled him. Something that, uh, that, that the song of victory offended him uh, greatly. This party enthusiasm is somewhat tempered in David's success by some bitter feelings of Saul. David's success brings trouble on himself. David's success brings trouble on himself. He says this in uh, verse 4, Saul was very angry. This refrain uh, displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. He felt insecure about his position. He felt insecure that people would love David more, that there would be more attention heaped on David, that people would be attracted to him and and be loyal to him. And God had told Saul through the the prophet Samuel that he would not continue uh, as king, that, that his kingdom would be torn from him. And lurking in the back of his mind all the time is, God is going to take this away from me. And instead of humbling himself before God, he became very self-centered. He had le- legitimate reason for concern. And Saul is now overcome by that green-eyed monster. Jealousy. Jealousy. Saul is jealous when he hears all of this singing and the accolades that are afforded David. Saul is jealous, and it says from that time he kept a close eye, or some of the versions have, a jealous eye on David. He's now watching him. I I can't can't trust this guy. I'm jealous of him. I I think he wants my position. I'm afraid he'll take it away from me. I know God is doing something, and I'm going to fight this for all I can, all I'm worth. And jealousy is found in this kind of comparison and... uh, um, looking what somebody else has and what I have. And, and it's also uh, filled with self-concern and self-love. What does somebody else have? What do, what do they have? How do people uh, 
do, how do people love or respect others? I want it to be about me. I deserve that. Why don't people say the, th- the same things about me? Why do they say that David does tens of thousands and I only do thousands? Why, do, why does he make me look bad? And all of us have suffered at times with jealous feelings, I'm sure. All of us have looked and wondered why somebody was getting something that we weren't getting. Somebody was doing something that we wanted to do, but we couldn't do. Somebody took a position that we wish was ours. All of that. And... and uh, here, here he is. He's keeping score. What did they say about David? What did they say about me? Uh, am I getting enough press? Are they talking more about David? And so he's got these terrible, jealous features. And it, it spawned in him this protectionism. I've got to protect myself. I've got to protect my kingdom. I've got to protect my reputation. And so now he's, he has uh, turned himself against David. That all the popularity and all of what David has now is turning sadly sour. And it went from jealousy to fear. Saul is afraid. He's jealous and he's afraid. It says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. He's going to take this from me. He's gonna, it's mine, but he's going to take it from me. And he's, a, he's afraid. In other words, Saul saw how successful he was and he was afraid of him. Afraid, afraid. Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. What he, didn't, what he didn't take into account, that David had done nothing to be worthy of that. All David did was serve him faithfully and love him, but he sees with the jealousy and now the fear that, that he can't do that anymore, that he can't trust him, that people will take from him what he wants. And so he turns on David. Not only is there that, but Saul is an angry man. It expresses itself in anger. In verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? He's afraid. He's petrified. It's not fair. I deserve better. God owes me. Why don't people treat me better? Why don't people love me more? And now he begins to lash out at others. Anybody who's not on his team now is the object uh, of his anger and resentment. Even his own family, even his own daughter, even his own son, who were loyal to him but tried to protect David. This, these all converge, jealousy and fear and anger. And Saul has David in the crosshairs of his weapon. Sad. The next years of David's life are going to be spent running, trying to protect himself, trying to stay alive. And it's going on for years. It started right here in in, um, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, here, here is David, and he's in, and, and God, what God did was sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. Now, I can't understand that entirely, but God plagued him with this. And they brought David to play his harp, to kind of soothe him. And, and Saul went into this rage and picked up his spear and threw it at David, and David ducked, and it went into the wall, and he threw another one, and du- David ducked, and he got out of there. Here he was, the guy that he was caring for, the guy that he was serving is now trying to kill him in his own house. But God blessed and protected David. 
Uh, Saul sent soldiers to David's home to kill him while he was in bed. And his wife, uh, Michael, helped to cover over. She put a a statue in bed and covered it and and got David out of there. Here is is, uh, Saul after him again. David flees and he goes to Nob and there he asks for some supplies from the the priests there at Nob. And uh, he takes some things and he escapes. And then Saul is on his trail, and Saul, they say, well, Saul, you know, what are you doing? And, and Saul hears that David was there, so he came. And uh, there at Nob, he said, uh, why, why, did you, why did you do this? Why did you support David? He said, I wasn't supporting David. He needed some food. I mean, this is our, this is our guy. This is one of our guys. I gave him some food, and he asked for the, the sword of Goliath, which was there wrapped up in cloth. And he said, well, you're, you're disloyal to me. No, they weren't disloyal to him at all. And so Saul had 85 priests killed. And he had every man, woman, and child in that town killed. He's, unrash- he's, he's unreasonable. He's irrational. And, and, and here he is. Um, now David gets into this cat and mouse uh, thing with Saul. And Saul's got 3,000 soldiers that are following, trying to get David and in sometimes they're going over one side of the mountain and, and David's men are on the other side. He's running for his life. He, there's no place where he can go to find solace. And, and on one occasion, Saul goes into a cave and he's going to relieve himself there. And David and his men were in the back of the cave. And David snuck up in the quiet and cut a piece off of his garment. And after he left, David went out and called my Lord, the King, why are, you, why are you after me? I mean you no harm. And David said, here, I cut this off. And his men are all saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. God has, de- God has given him into your hand now. Just get rid of him. Have, have, have him done with once and for all. And David rebuked them. You will not lift your hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to uh, 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 the ascendancy of the throne uh, by virtue of stealing it or killing somebody to do it that is God's work alone and Saul is uh, shows some remorse and said well I won't do that anymore but the pursuit continues and another time thereafter David and and Saul and his men are all camped out and uh, sleeping and the Lord put them into a deep sleep and uh, and David goes down And he takes Saul's spear stuck in the ground beside him and he takes his water bottle. And then he calls down and he says to uh, to his general, Abner, what do you think should be done to the man who would endanger the king's life like this? Where's his spear? Where's his water bottle? Uh, And they look, it's not there. It's here. Why are you chasing me? I mean you no harm. David, my son, I won't chase you anymore. David, it's okay. And this goes on and on and on. And, and, and uh, here, if he's going to take the throne, if he's going to be the king, um, he's got to deal with this whole situation. I think, personally, I think what happened in this whole thing is God knew that David wasn't ready to be the king. He was a kid. And, and that the success that he had enjoyed could go to his head and that, that he would be the worse for it. And so I, I think somehow in the providence of God, God was 
saying, life has been too good and too easy for David. He needs, he needs to be battle-worn and tested. He needs to come to understand how to walk with the Lord, how to depend upon the Lord in that way. And so I believe that God is preparing David for future service, and he's doing it through adversity. He may let down his guard. He may become conceited. He might believe everything that people are singing and saying about him, how wonderful he is. He might become self, self-absorbed. He may become self-directed, uh, self, uh, not appreciating the hardships that other people go through, uh, treating others uh, with, with disdain, uh, not appreciating all of the hardships that come to people in life. So God worked to mold and make him. I think this is a case of Romans 8.28. He says, Paul, Paul says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. God is working. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. Power, all God has providential control of all of history. And, and I think what he's saying here is that God so orchestrated the events in David's life that he would help him to become the man of God that he would need to become to become the king. You know, to me, this is, this is a verse that Gerda and I have ha- had to hang our lives on through the years. This is a, this is a verse where, where God says, you know, I'm in control of everything that happens. All the good stuff, all the pleasant stuff, uh, that, that's for me. But also all the tough stuff, the difficult stuff, the trials, the struggles, the heartaches, those are for me too. And you need to understand that in everything, in every situation, God is working. And, and, and that may be very unpleasant for us at times. God is working for our good. He wants us to learn lessons. He wants to shape and mold our character. He wants us, and we find out in the next verse, in verse 29, that he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. You and I may say glibly, I want to I be like Jesus. I, I, want, to, I, I want to be like him. And, and again, I would, I would challenge you. Do, you. do you really want to be like Jesus? Because if you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have to go through some stuff and you're going to have to live like Jesus. You can't waltz through life with a silver spoon in your mouth and not have any kind of difficulty or challenge or struggle in your life. No, you, learn, you need to learn how to trust God. You need to know how to be faithful even when things are tough. You need to know how not to return evil for evil like Jesus did. You need to learn to forgive those who've done terrible things to you as Jesus hung on the cross and, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You want to become like Jesus? I think God was fashioning and molding uh, David to prepare him for the throne. What are you going through in tough times, in difficulties, in challenges? You're discouraged. You're wondering why things are happening in your life, why things aren't better, why, why, why your, your, your marriage is struggling, or why your kids are having problems, or, the, or, or, or financial issues, or whatever it is, or health issues, whatever it is. Do you believe that God is in control and he's working all things for his purpose, our good, his glory, 
Or are you just angry? See, Saul would never get there. The same Apostle Paul that said that was the same Apostle Paul who was confronted with a situation in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul had what he called a, uh, a uh, torment from Satan, a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is, but it seems, it seems the indication is probably that it was, uh, what it was was some physical ailment or problem he had that was holding him back in ministry. And Paul was able to say he prayed about this issue for three times. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul who, when a guy fell out of the window because he was preaching too long and the kid fell asleep, he went down and raised him from the dead. This is Paul who prayed and lame people walked and, and blind people saw. This is, this is Paul who, who God powerfully used. And here he is. And he's got a thorn in the flesh. And he's prayed with faith, believing, God, take it away, God, take it away. And he says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He understood that. He's the one who wrote Romans 8.28, God's working. Now, David, work it out in your own life. What's happening to you? Yeah, well, I've got this thorn in the flesh, and sometimes these migraines, I can't even deal with it, or my eyesight, or or, uh, I have seizures, or whatever, some of the things that are suggested that it might be. Yeah, but does it work for you? Yeah, because God kept me from being conceited. God kept me from being self-focused. God kept me from, from trusting myself by leaving me in this state, not taking it away, and knowing that his grace would be enough for me, and I would be able to do that. And I think God is saying, David, I've got a special plan for your life. But David, um, your life has been too easy, and your rise to stardom too quick, and, and, and I worry for you. I worry that you need to understand that your success is only in God, and you don't be- begin to believe and live according to the press clippings that are out there about you. David, this is for you. And, and, and you, you know, I, I think that when we look at this, it comes right back to this. That Jesus is our ultimate model. Jesus, the greater son of David. Jesus, the, the eternal king that would come from, from David's line. He is our model. There's a verse that... that is striking to me in Hebrews. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Here's Christ pouring out himself in prayer and tears. Even though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, there was nothing defective 
in Jesus. There was no imperfection in him. He never violated what God wanted in in any way. But as a model for us, living in the power of the Spirit, though he was a son, though he was God the Son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So that when we come to him as a high priest, we come to one who can feel feel with us in the infirmities that we have, that we struggle with, because he himself went through those things, not to perfect him and make him better, but to prove him and to have him understand who we are. And I think that's where David is. David is being prepared for the future. God may be preparing you for something in the future that is beyond what you can imagine. Um, God may be God may be allowing you to go through things and challenges to teach you lessons that you wouldn't learn any other way. You wouldn't learn if, if your health were fine. You wouldn't learn if you didn't have a struggle with finances. You wouldn't learn if there weren't problems with your, your relationships. God is, God is working in you to make you the kind of person that ultimately He can use and will reflect and radiate His glory. And He wants us to be satisfied with Him. He he wants us to look to Him, to trust Him. And and learning to trust Him means we need to sometimes go through some things that are going to be really difficult. And we need to find Him faithful. And we need to be satisfied in Him. Do you need that? Uh, Do you need that little bit of encouragement today to to keep faithful, to keep going, uh, to to, to understand that God has not abandoned you in the difficulties and the challenges that you have, but he'll be with you and he will take you through that and he'll make you more like Jesus and he'll make you more usable for his own glory and purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example that we have seen in David. We thank you, though he had opportunities for revenge, vengeance was not his platform. Uh, Lord, we we see him trying to make sense of the anointing and being the next king and yet not taking that into his own hands. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask for help for us. Lord, some of us are going through some really tough, difficult times. Some of us are, are, are struggling terribly. And, and I pray, Father, that you'd help us to understand that you haven't, you haven't departed from us. You haven't neglected us. You are working in and through us, and you will provide by your Holy Spirit everything we need to be what you want us to be and to grow and to learn, uh, to trust you and to deepen our relationship and our walk with you. Father, I pray that you'd help us in this matter and that you would move us steps ahead to be like Jesus Christ, our model, our Savior, our Lord, our healer, and our soon-coming King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
We are 